So, uh, hey Mike. Hey Kong. Welcome to episode 11. Very good. Of Dominions. This week we're going to talk about uh, some news and we're going to talk about camera sensors and uh, what an exciting world that has become over the last few years. Um, and then we'll probably get off topic and talk about other things. So yeah, so we're getting close to IBC now, the big video trade show and conference out in Amsterdam. That's next week, I think? Yeah, Is it starts, right? I think, on Monday of next week. Um, and so, yeah, we're definitely getting to the point where, um, yeah, so there's People are starting uh, to release their press releases and uh, things are leaking. So we've, uh, we've got some new gear, yeah, at least well, pictures of new gear, renderings of new gear. Yeah, indeed. Um, already a bunch of um, different 4K projectors for quote-unquote home users uh, from JVC and Sony. Um, okay, can we, let's talk about those for a little bit. Yeah. So there's two different... There, I've seen two, The like you said, JVC and Sony. The Sony one, I think, is like a real 4K projector. The yep. JVC uses kind of a wobbly mirror or wobbly lens deal to uh, basically draw two different um, uh, 1080p videos back and forth um, and kind of works off. It's almost like uh, two-dimensional interlacing um, and relying on persistence of vision to up your perceived dimensionality. But so um, I guess the the thing I haven't been able to see from any of the the info that's been released or any of the like screen grabs of the booths and whatnot, but um, if these are for the home, how are we going, how are we getting 4K around people's living rooms you know i haven't seen that either um either in the photographs or in the press releases i haven't seen that mentioned i mean the jvc device seems to be mostly targeted at 4k via upscaling um right so i mean i'm i'm sure they both have scalers right yeah and and predominantly going to be 1080p right um Um, but no the the sony press release mentions upscaling as well and sort of alludes to the fact that you can display full 4K on it, but they don't actually say how you might get that uh, 4K signal into the projector. Right, because 4K is pretty new. Right, and there's not... I mean, they're still trying to come up with a good connector on the pro side. I mean, so we've got a... We've been playing around a little bit with some of the 4K options that are on the way. And, uh, you know, the two solutions right now for pro... You know, for the high-end video interconnects are four individual channels of 1080p basically the the frame is cut into four corners and sent down four different pipes and then recombined later or it's cut i'm not actually sure how the other one works if it's actually visual if it's you know visually coherent but it's sent down two pipes of 3g um and I don't like. I don't see that. What are they going to do for HDMI? Right, or or, or um, two dual link DVI, maybe. I suppose. 
Um, but I mean, there's still not a single device that outputs that. Right. Yeah. It, it, again, it's very unclear, and and certainly they're not demoing it with 4K, or at least they're not talking about it being fed with 4K native sources. So I don't know. I mean, it's. I mean, I imagine that somewhere on the HDMI roadmap, there's a 4K resolution, but I wouldn't know about such things. But I bet Wikipedia does. Let's look. So yeah, I mean, it's. Do, 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 do. It's interesting. I guess it's a chicken and the egg thing. So someone has to ship something first, um, whether it be you know a player that outputs or a device that displays it, and then they can work from there to sort of push the standard along. Right. So I mean, you know, as long as both of these have the same nebulous connector on the back, I think it's a it's. A good step. Yeah, absolutely. It does look like there is an HDMI standard for for 4K uh, QFHD uh, that's been implemented on a few different of the panels that were being shown off, like at NAB, the 4K LCDs and things. So okay, so that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, HDMI I is a parallel connection, so it can definitely handle a lot more data than a right. single pipe of HDSDI. Right. Um, so that would be nice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'll just have to see. Yeah, and these also, are these are. Does HDMI is that is HDMI ever compressed? No, on the carrier. No. Okay. Um, I thought one dot four maybe for the three D was, but no. I don't think so, but pretty sure not. Um, yeah, and of course the you know. These are for home use ostensibly, but Sony's still talking in the $25,000 range for their unit. The JVC is a little cheaper, but again, isn't, you know, 4K native in terms of the actual, the not sensor, but the display, the DLP. Right. Um, so, you know, still pretty spendy, but, uh, you know, there's certainly been a lot of bu- growing buzz as we reach the end of... 2011 about the sort of end of the 3d experiment in motion picture and and home tvs um so you know maybe as 4k ramps up we'll start to see a push in that direction instead it's also worth noting that i think both of these are also 3d projectors right well but for projectors there's you know it's easy enough to do i'm sure so it's good i think it'll be uh so how do do you know how they do that? With um, I think do they have a rotating? Probably, and then they, have, they have active glasses with these guys. So oh really? Yeah, I thought they'd be polarized. No, um, I thought I just read that the JVC has active glasses, active shutter glasses. But, uh, Never mind. It's as good as worthless. I don't want one anymore. All right, I will cancel my order. Yes, JVC, uh, don't back. bother sending me one. You've made Wait, someone and so, very sad. And so JVC is claiming thirty five hundred dollars for theirs. No, they're claiming like twelve thousand. Oh, yeah, the the problem is that both of these companies did a press release that re- announced like a dozen different models each. Yeah, I see now. Um, so it's a little confusing, but yeah, I think they're saying about twelve grand. Okay, I see now. Nice. Yeah, good deal. I'd rather, you know, hopefully we'll see some consumer panels uh, soon as well. And, uh, yeah, that'll be nice. 
We can go for Okay. So um, the other things from IBC or IBC oriented, um, and you know, because anything sort of vaguely related to video gets dumped in this IBC press release. Um, there have been a couple different Thunderbolt devices that I was excited to see um, announced or announced as shipping soon. Um, one from Magma, who you may know as the people who um, historically have made those sort of crazy PCI Express breakout boxes where you sort of put a card in your Mac Pro and then it breaks out to like eight more PCI slots in a sort of ugly chassis. Um, they've announced a three-card chassis. Crazy for, breakout box. <laughs> yeah, this one's at least um, styled slightly nicer. The old ones sort of look like just bent steel. Um, but this is a three-slot breakout for Thunderbolt. So plug it into your MacBook Air or whatever, and you can jack in three PCI cards, which is pretty nice. Um, if you want to put your your Air on a SAN or something, you can have your extra Ethernet plus your fiber channel all in one box, uh, which is at least semi-portable. Or you could have an Air with two NVIDIA cards with right. the SLI. Right. Mm. Well, SLI is a motherboard. You need some motherboard support too. But really? Mean, yeah. I thought that was just an interconnect between the two cards themselves. I'm pretty sure that the board, the motherboard, has to specifically support it as well. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to look that one up sometime. Ne- neither of us are gamers, and uh, neither of us have PCs. So, um, but it also, yeah, it's it's just a an, a nice sort of box. They haven't announced a price yet, um, but. I would expect that it'll come in under a thousand bucks. I would hope, um, which makes it really? pretty reasonable. That would that would be. I would be surprised if it was under. Well, I'm it, guessing somewhere between fifteen hundred and two thousand. I mean, historically, their stuff's not been crazy expensive, um, but it's had. I mean, yeah, but a PCIe to PCIe breakup box has a lot less engineering costs. Hmm. Let's see. What is a products pci express expansion yeah maybe you're right their four slot pci express expansion is uh 2400 yeah that's about what i we'll see we'll see either way it's uh if you need to put a card into your air it is going to be the cheapest way to do it (laughs) right well i mean and and that brings me to the other um announcement from sonnet who announced a bunch of thunderbolt stuff at uh NAB and so far hasn't really shipped any of it, although they've, I think they're real close to shipping that express card adapter we talked about um, on a previous show. They made an announcement of um, something called the RackMac, uh, which is a 1U rack mount unit for a current gen Mac Mini uh, that takes the Mac Mini and adds a PCI expansion slot as well as a, a powered PCI. Um, slot as well as front power and front USB the idea being that you can use this as a server in a data center um, you know manage it in a rack like you might an XServe if they still made XServes and have space to add at least one PCI card um, which is nice I would really like this device if they had two slots it would be a lot more interesting but and then what do you need two slots for? Well, again, for the SAN setup to be able to add Ethernet plus fiber channel. I'm surprised no one's gone. It seems like I mean the only use case for fiber channel ever is a SAN. Well, but historically, why has no one made a PCI 
card yeah, that his, has historically both. it's going into towers where you know all the mac pros have dual ethernet um so that's never been an issue all the xers had dual ethernet and most pcs either have dual ethernet or you spend you know 30 bucks on a ethernet card so i don't think it's made sense to engineer a board that's got everything on one but you know we may see that i know um some of the manufacturers at nab were talking about potentially doing a thunderbolt box that would be fiber channel plus ethernet um nice and i think you know i think what we're seeing is that the dedicated thunderbolt boxes are a little further out whereas what we're seeing immediately are boxes that just break out to a pci slot and then you add your card to get the functionality you need which doesn't really have any downsides aside from being a bit bigger um so anyways um cool to see thunderbolt things and hey i'm i'm curious to see how stable yes very pci external pci devices are i mean if it's just done as like a simple text sort of bridge in the kernel where it's still the computer still treats it as a pci device that right isn't supposed to disappear on a moment's notice well the apple thunderbolt equipped displays are also shipping as of this week at least um going out to stores and and making their way out into the channel so that'll be our first sort of indication since those have onboard gigabit ethernet fiber or firewire and usb all fed via thunderbolt um so we'll start to get a sense of how os 10 responds to things like uh the the firewire bus going away when you undock your monitor right Um, although that that i mean traditionally has been a little more robust than pci well but this disconnects right i mean there's but in this case it's actually the pci bus fiber channel or firewire card effectively being disconnected it's not the bus itself if that makes sense you know it's like well i mean you know pulling the thunderbolt connector out of your laptop on this monitor is going to be the same as ripping a gigabit ethernet card out of your mac pro um so it'll be interesting to see how OS 10 handles that. Right. But I mean, Ethernet as a service has always had a model for that, as has... Sure, but at a driver, at a hardware driver level, they've had support for the devices going away, the devices on the bus going away, but not for the bus itself going away. Right. You know. I mean, there's always, I think there's always been a way to power down a PCI card in a machine. In the spec, it's just that no one ever. Right, I'm just curious because of, user you know you think about the way that people use a laptop <laughs> monitor, for example. You often unplug it while the laptop's asleep, for example. Um, you know, you're running out of the office. You close your lid and pull the thing and go. Right. Um, well, so it'll just be interesting to see how OS 10 handles that and whether we need to go through some iteration cycles, or if they've thought about this, or if sort of previously made decisions just sort of handle it for us. Um, we will see. Um, so the only, the one other um, Thunderbolt announcement this week was a new drive. Yeah, yeah, uh, from GTech, our friends at GTech. We like GTech. Um, they're nice. We people. do. I don't know. They've always been real nice to us. To us? Yeah, we've sat next to them at like trade shows and stuff. Oh, yeah, they're, they're friendly, friendly people. Okay, they work hard. I don't know. I you know. I G- think you were implying that they sent us lots of free stuff. I was like, what? No, no. Yes, but if they no, want they're, to, they're, we're, they are friendly we're people. Even better. I mean, GTEx. You know, the the whole issue of portable drives is a tricky one because uh, when you're an indie, 
um, or a student or a nonprofit, the inclination is to buy really cheap um, when you need a portable drive. But once you get into the place where you're building budgets for projects, uh, it's certainly a lot nicer to be able to say we're going to spend a little bit more for quality and, and make that up in the lack of headaches. And GTEC's always been the sort of default go-to uh, if you like things that last, unlike uh, drives from French people. Um, GTEC's a great choice, and I know they've gone through some ownership changes and you know are sort of stuck within a larger corporation now, but they announced a pretty cool-looking product, which is a... Um, and one of their dual drive enclosures that they've had for years and years and years, except this one's got two four terabyte drives in it and a Thunderbolt connector on the back. So the four the four terabyte drives are they came out this week, right? Well, Last they week? they've just started shipping in externals. It's the new thing that um, Western Digital at least is doing, and I guess other manufacturers are doing it now too, which is putting their big drives in external enclosures first and then releasing bare drives later um with the three terabyte drives at least it was because there was some driver support needed or some bios support needed or whatever on the pc side for the larger drives and so putting it in an enclosure lets them um abstract that away sure and i'm sure it also is nice for them to be able to you know get some get some margins back into a product that's become pretty commoditized but uh but yeah so i guess you know Western Digital, or maybe it was Seagate, did a four, a single four terabyte drive this week, and now Hitachi apparently has the same drives and is doing a dual four terabyte enclosure. That'll be nice. Yeah, it's a lot of data to lose to RAID Zero. <laughs> what are the chances of an external Twice drive? Twice as good as a single fail. drive? No, external drives never fail. Right. And two of them packed together is even less likely to fail. No, I, I you know, GTEC knows what they're doing in terms of heat management and everything, but I'm always scared of these dual and quad drive enclosures, even from a good vendor. Um, you know, I, I have you really experienced problems with that? I mean, oh yeah, I mean, I've I've known a lot of people who've lost data, and the problem is that. Um, I know a lot of people who've lost data over the years to external drives, but one, it was because they bought a drive that suffered from being made by Lassie, or they, by the way, the Lassie drives suck if that was not uh, yeah. obvious enough. They're, Horrible they're the French people. crap. I know, but we didn't spell it out enough. We didn't okay. specifically say that Lassie is the worst. Right. You should check out my website, Lassie drives are the worst drives ever.com. <laughs> yeah, Lassie, please don't send us anything. Dot info. Yeah, I worked at a place that had like 30 Lassie drives, and I think our failure rate was like three a week. Yeah. No, Oxygen, we had, I mean, for a while, they were the only drives you could buy. Yeah. And uh, we had a lot of them, and they were not good. But I mean, most besides them, um, you know, like I, I always suggested people buy the OWC enclosures, mm -hmm. which were great, very robust. And I mean, they still had a fairly high failure rate, but it was predominantly from falling off desks. Mm -hmm. I mean, did you did you experience a lot of problems with the actual rated units, like um, corruption? Or what? Well, I mean, no, the big thing with like the, um, so Western Digital has a, a line called the MyBook, which is, a, it's it's one of the few brands of externals you can sort of reliably buy at a Best Buy or something. And, and they're, they're decent drives, uh, decent enclosures. And so we used to recommend them a lot for students who needed to, you know, buy from the bookstore or something. And one of the really scary things with the dual drive enclosures, of course, is that mm -hmm. um, 
if either of the two drives fail, you lose all your data. Sure. Um, so you double your chances. Right. And so, and you know, there's, there's more heat, there's more vibrations. There's other things in there that I think up it beyond just the normal loss of a drive due to, you know, whatever the chance of a drive get, dying at any given time are. And so that, that's mostly what scares me. I don't think that they're sort of, uh, you know, ipso facto bad product or anything like that. Um, but I, I, they, they do scare me. And I think that, you know, the problem is just, I see people who one either don't realize that they've got two drives in there to just don't think about backing up, um, an external, you know, I think they're great if you, you know, buy two of these GTEC units and keep them cloned to each other. Uh, that's fantastic. It's, you know, still going to be a really cheap way to get eight terabytes of space and it's going to be wicked fast over Thunderbolt. Sure. But, uh, just keep that in mind that you know there is a risk there yeah remember w we'll put it in the show links www.lc is the worst drive ever en.uk.co right right i mean i think you know the the yeah and um one of the other i don't remember which one of the other podcasts from uh, from Five by Five has been talking about this lately. You know, one of the bad things with most externals, and this was the case with OSCs, is just controller and power supply failures. Usually, the drives themselves don't die. It's just right. that you know, there's there's more bits between you and your data that can fail that prevent you from getting your data. And uh, you know, if you don't know that you can rip that enclosure apart and get your drive out and put it inside your computer, um, you may never sort of realize that your data might be recoverable. No, um, I was I, I once uh was working I was uh writing some uh bespoke software for a documentary and in the process I so I you know I talked to everybody over email I had an editor who was a friend and he's the one who set everything up he was editing the movie and I kind of worked back and forth with them and so eventually I I set up a um a meeting with Apple because you know the movie was going to be really good, and um, we wanted to show them a trailer and see if they wanted to do some press about it and about the software we'd written and whatnot, and <clears throat> showed up with the with the Apple rep, and we're at the guy's house and we're like having a good time. We're talking about the movie. We watch like we screen something on the laptop or something, you know, a layoff, um, and then we go into the room where they're editing. And it is a desk with the computer on it and then like a bookshelf and on the bookshelf with no sides are two entire shelves. It's one of those like open fancy Scandinavian bookshelves uh-huh. and you know the kind where you need book ends if you're going to put books in them because they don't actually hold books very right. well. And this one had two entire shelves stacked with lacies on their side you know how they they decided <laughs> yeah. it was a great idea to include those little feet so you could stack them like uh like dominoes right and it was two whole things not like on near the floor either they were like above they were like at eye height when you were standing with sea drives and both of us said you should move those <laughs> you should re- Oh yeah, no, no. We we we've been talking about that. I'm like, no, you, we you, you know, we both were like, you should move those before we screen this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we do not want to be here when these fall. 
Yeah, I've known at least uh, a couple projects that have had to, you know, completely start over from, you know, at the final color correct or the final screening or something. The drive gets knocked off the uh, off the table, and uh, yeah. that was the only copy of the data. So, and and one one thing I would mention just on the topic of controllers, of course, is that with any of these dual drive enclosures. Um, if the controller does fail, these are all proprietary sort of striping schemes. So your only chance of getting your data back would be to find an identical enclosure and potentially, you know, an identical enclosure with an identical firmware even, um, which does make it a little bit trickier. So another thing to keep in mind um, as you're thinking about drives to buy, but again, I, you know, we like GTEC and uh, I'm, you know, eager to see what kind of performance they're getting out of these four terabyte drives. Yeah, that'll be nice. Yeah, and hopefully again, again, I think they didn't announce pricing, but uh, I imagine it will be relatively spendy. Well, but I mean, probably under a thousand bucks. I would right. relatively spendy for eight terabytes. If, no, relatively spendy for a drive, but outrageously cheap for eight terabytes of external storage. Right, a fast external storage, even. Yeah. Yeah. So. I'm I'm gonna be curious. They're really the first ones doing a striped sort of low intermediary sort of thunderbolt. Right. I mean, we've had closure. some more extensive. I mean, there are lots of ones with huge RAID controllers and whatnot. Although so I guess Lassie has a dual drive SSD enclosure that um, they've shown off. Yeah, for some reason I'm not eager to test that one. It's, I don't uh, remember what. Let me let me check my browser history here. Oh yes, um, I think it's also you know Yes, 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 yes. So, um, last news item before we get into sensor talk. Um, just a minor note, but uh, Re- we mentioned Red's event last week where they announced Red Cine X Pro Max Extreme or whatever, um, which we mentioned, and I, we may have struggled with the product name, but we mentioned being very similar to a product um, from the Foundry called Storm. Uh, the Foundry noticed as well that it was very similar to a product from the Foundry called Storm, and so they've announced that they will no longer be selling that product. And so it's a case of free software uh, sort of, you know, squeezing someone out of the market uh, when it's a very limited market. If the free software looks pretty good, it's hard to compete with free. Yeah. I was surprised how quickly it happened, though. I mean, it's still in beta. Um, Well, it's version 1.0 v4, but it's in beta the way all video software is in beta. But, I mean, they're not. I mean, I I guess you can get it, and red users are used to buying stuff right, and later getting it to work. Beta firmware is why wouldn't they run software True. beta? I don't know. They just seemed really eager to can their product. Well, Although there's some, there's, I've heard a lot of talk that it's coming back at IBC. Yeah, they've got something they're announcing, but again... Uh, I suspect, I mean, Storm was red only, correct? I believe so. Yeah, I suspect they killed it and they're replacing it with something that is identical but for more cameras right yeah which would be nice i mean it was a it was a nice tool for in sort of the dit workflow right well we'll just have to see um how things shake up i mean the foundry is certainly 
you know, while it's a bummer to have to kill a product that you've obviously spent a lot of time developing, the foundry's got a lot on their uh, on their plate. So they're, I don't think this will be too big a blow to them. Um, and, you know, hopefully it just leads to bigger and better things from them going forward. Right. Although on a related note, Red has a lot on their plate too. Why are they doing software? Yeah, that seems a little weird as well. But Red's never made a ton of sense in terms of the ways they choose to spend their resources. So. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. Hey, speaking of uh, high-resolution devices, that was my segue. Thanks. I hadn't noticed. Yeah. Now we're going to talk about sensors. Okay, so uh, how do you want to do this? You're going to walk us through this. Well, I don't know. You know, because we're uh, so good at planning we didn't really talk through what we wanted to talk about vis-a-vis sensors here um you know mostly i'm just interested in some of the interesting things that are going on in the space um in terms of where we've where we've come and uh where we're at now and and people are starting to do some pretty innovative i I think innovative things um with sensor design to correct some of the issues that we've come across over the last few years so um Sure. So do we need to start with a simple explanation of the two main technologies or can we take that as as a given? Well, we can throw I've I've got a few good links pulled um that I'll put in our show notes. The the you know, real basic thing is that there's two primary types of sensors used in cameras, uh CCDs, uh which have historically been the way you did digital imaging and CMOS, which over the last few years has um taken over the space by and large um and they're different ways of doing of you know converting photons into well into charges that can then be digitized um and they both have pros and cons um cmos sort of came on the scene primarily when we moved to hd cmos sensors have been around um in still imaging for a while and um as the need became apparent to go to larger um, sensors for for HD, it was important to have cost-effective ways to do that and um, more scalable ways to do that, and CMOS is the technology for that. So, um, but certainly has some downsides. Um, So, I don't know. So can you walk us through the the difference in the two technologies? Do you... Uh, Are you familiar with the difference? I... can, the foundational stuff? Well, so, um, not really. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it's it's a difference on in the at the silicon level in just the way they convert a photon into a voltage, right? I mean... Right. I mean, the big difference... I mean, the, the trade-off between the two seems to be that CCDs are fairly error prone in the gen- in the manufacturing process which means they don't scale as well um, and so if making a making drastically larger CCDs is sort of an exponentially uh, less trivial problem each time you up your your resolution right um, the the major advantage to them or I guess it's not so much an advantage to them, but the major disadvantage for CMOS, CMOS scales much better, and it's a cheaper technology to implement. 
Um, but the major disadvantage is that there's no, I believe it's that there's no external trigger to the photo sensor. So you can think of each individual pixel being a series of photo sensors. So there's these little areas on the chip which are in charge of picking up, basically counting the number of photons that hit them and converting that into you know an analog signal which is then digitized later. And I believe CCD actually has some sort of pulse which is driven into it, which tells it when to start and stop that mm-hmm. right. That polling. And so what you're able to do is it, it essentially works like a shutter where you can say start counting and the whole chip starts counting. And then you say stop and then the whole chip freezes and then you read out all the pixels and you've got an image. Not pixels, all the photosites. Um, whereas CMOS, it just is all, you can reset things at any time, but there's no way to physically stop it from that, that right. binning. Right. And so it leads to a phenomena called the rolling, rolling shutter. shutter. Right. Just a, a few other real basic things, cause we'll touch on these as we go, um, is that CMOS has traditionally been at a disadvantage in terms of dynamic range. Um, and in terms of noise as well. And so those are some of the other things that were sort of critiques of CMOS as they started to hit the scene. Um, but uh, rolling shutter has been the big one for sort of indies getting into the space um, because especially on a bad CMOS setup, um, rolling shutter is this effect where the whole world sort of looks like jello. Um, and, you know, if you have one of the older flip cameras, for example, these were you know, particularly egregious. Um, if you sort of shook the camera back and forth, um, the whole world would sort of go liquefied. Um, and that's good. So, okay. You want to explain why this happens? Yeah. So the idea, as Mike was saying, um, is that you're sort of constantly reading out the sensor from left to right or top to bottom, depending on how it's oriented um, physically in the camera. And so what happens is that you read, you know, let's just say we read the top line and store that and read the next line and the next line. But once you finish reading the top line, you reset it and it starts accumulating data again. And so by the time you've gotten down to the bottom of the image and finished reading that line out and you're ready to move back to the top, um, you know, the camera's moved some amount in the time that it's taking you to read out the, that whole sensor. And so if you think about, you know, capturing a, um, a straight line or a tree, for example, as you're moving the camera back and forth, um, the the tree is not in the same place when the first line is reset as when the last line is reset. Um, and so they, so they essentially are taking different pictures. It's very similar to sort of the idea of interlaced, like we talked about a while sure. back, is that you can have these two fields that are capturing different moments in time with CMOS. Every single line is capturing a slightly different moment in time. Um, and uh, that can cause some, some issues, especially if you're... Um, you know, not taking into account when you're shooting and if your sensor is, um, you know, particularly susceptible to this. Right. And so one of the, the easiest ways to see, one of the, the most egregious examples of rolling shutter is if you are in a dark room, say you're shooting a rock concert or something, and someone fires off a strobe. So that strobe lasts, so you're shooting 60p, you're shooting 60 frames of video a second, and that strobe lasts for a thousandth of a second. Now, 
somewhere you were, I mean, that camera was capturing light during that period of time, but you're only going to, you're not going to get it on an entire frame of video. What will happen is it will be everything above, you know, so if you imagine it starting at the top and working down, it will be, it will show up on everything above that line where whatever line is reading, it will be brighter above that than it will be down. And so the entire thing comes out at like a gradient. And it's uh, it's pretty obvious when you see it. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can, you know, once you start looking for it, you'll see it everywhere. And most of the time, it's not a big deal. But um, in, in certain situations, um, it can be a, a huge deal. You know, wedding videographers deal with this because there's constantly flashes going off. Um, concert is probably the worst when you've actually got strobes on stage or something like that. Um, it can it can make video you know, practically unusable. Um, and it can also make motion effects very difficult when you need to do tracking shots and things like that. Because especially when CMOS chips first hit the scene, tracking software didn't know what to do. It didn't know about uh, rolling shutter, and so it didn't understand what could be going on in terms of points moving in in odd ways. Right, and so we should. Um, and so, so there's those those sort of artifacts, and then the the another place where you see a lot of artifacting is with reoccurring motion, things like um, the old wagon wheel. Right. issue or spokes on a bike or um, if you we can probably put uh, um, a sample in the show notes that there's two ones that come to mind for me um, propellers on the iPhone yeah people have shot some really great like out the window of the plane shots and what will happen is it you don't even get anything remotely like a spinning propeller right. when you're done just because it's sampling at roughly the same frequency as the thing is spinning and so you get some sort of like not moving or moving top to bottom instead of circular they're really crazy um, and then another one I saw that was really cool was someone stuck their iPhone in their guitar pointing out oh yeah that one was pretty and shined wicked. it at a window and it happened to when they would pluck a string the string would vibrate at some um multiple of the sampling rate of the thing and so it, you could actually see the wave of the string as yeah. it vibrated very cool effect yeah very cool but not something you necessarily want <laughs> when shooting so um that was definitely one of the big issues uh, when when CMOS sensors first hit the scene, and and this was sort of, you know, two thousand five through two thousand seven or so that I think this issue became a big one in the indie scene s- circles. Um, and since then, the the issues kind of dropped away. Um, I think in part, it, well, it's definitely a mix of things. So in part, just like um, with the move to twenty four P, as people get more comfortable with the effect, you learn what you can and can't get away with. Um, and what things will look particularly egregious. Um, and there's certain- using that word a lot. This I week. am. Oh, sorry. Um, and there's also been improvements in sensors um, because if you can read out a sensor faster, uh, you cut down on this effect. 
Um, there's also at the high end of the market sensors that incorporate something called a global shutter, uh, which is a way of actually adding a shutter to a, a CMOS on the chip um, so that you can control that all the pixels start reading out at the same time and then stop accumulating um, at a certain time. And some cameras, I think um, at least maybe some builds of the DALSA Origin uh, 4K camera and maybe a few others actually incorporated mechanical shutters uh, to deal with this issue as well. And so it was actually a physical thing blocking the light uh, while the sensor was read out and then opened back up again. Sure. Um, but I, you know, nothing like that ever made it in the consumer market. Um, but you know, it's a trade-off. So one of the you know big advantages of um, CMOS is that they have very low power consumption. If you start you know jacking up clock rates and things like that to read them out faster, you start to run into issues of power consumption and you know all kinds of other issues in terms of moving data around faster and having to have more um, accurate uh, A to Ds and things like that. And so. You know, that's part of the reason that this is particularly egregious on the the cheaper things, you know, phone sensors and flip cameras and things like that, um, and not such a big issue on the higher end things at this point. Um, but right, I mean, if if it doesn't need to be incredibly portable, then you can start doing things like heat sinks, which right. allow you to clock it much faster. Um, the other thing that happened um, is that software has gotten better. So uh, I. Speaking of the Foundry, I think they were the first one to show this off at sure, NB a yeah. few years back. They showed off some software to correct rolling shutter um, by understanding the characteristics. They could sort of unskew the scene, and um, mostly for people using um, doing motion tracking. And so it wasn't necessarily an effect that you would apply for um, production or for the final final output, although you might. Um, but it was to sort of get you back to a rational scene that you could then track. Um, but even iMovie now, uh, iMovie and Final Cut X have de-rolling shutter capabilities um, built in, and I believe um, the the relevant software from Adobe does as well. Um, you know, certainly not something that most people need or would know to apply, but um, it's definitely come a long ways. Right, and I think there's been some progress in that on the DSP side too, within the camcorders. Sure, sure. So yeah, um, so that's the sort of trade-offs of the two. Yeah. Um, so you know, I think the other thing that's really interesting to me um, is just the different ways that people are choosing to use the photo sites that they can pack onto a chip uh, in terms of different ways of acquiring images and different things that you can um, optimize for. So. Um, Maybe we need to stop and talk about uh, bearing and RGB sensing. So maybe sure. we can do that. Um, do you want to do that? Or I you want me to do that? Sure. Right um, so yeah, so we talked about these photo sites before. Um, one of the analogy I kind of came up with in my head just a little while ago was imagine setting up a big table full of shot glasses. And the light coming down is water raining on the table. And you, you basically, the way you figure out what the image looks like is you you check periodically how much water is in each one of these individual photo sites. Um, and so that only does one thing. That's counting how much light hits a certain spot on the sensor. And so by default, all of these sensors 
will give you grayscale information only. All they're checking, all they're telling you is how much light is coming, how much light is hitting that spot. Right. And so in order to convert that into a color image, you either need a sensor for each of the three primaries, RGB, or what nearly every camera is doing now is building individual, taking each of those small photo sites on the sensor itself and putting tiny R, G, or B filters over each of the photo sites. And so the simplest way to do this would just be R, G, B, R, G, B, R, G, B, and then take the three of those photo sites, combine them together into a color pixel. Now what all of the sensors on the market, I believe, are doing is something a little less simplistic than that. They're, do, they're using what's called a Bayer pattern, which relies on the fact that the human eye is more sensitive to green than the other two um, colors. And it also has to do with the fact that the way we encode the video gives green much more precedence. And so really the entire video pipeline, most of the information that comes out the, the other end of a, you know, a YCRCB pipeline is going to be data that was encoded in the green channel. And so they pack far more green pixels onto the sensor than R and B. And then they set them up in sort of a grid pattern such that there's not three photo sites to get one color pixel, there's, I think it's two point something. Um, the idea being that you take a grid of pixels around it and you know combine, you use a weighted pattern to combine them all together into a color site. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, I think it's worth, uh, we, you glanced over it, but I think it's worth talking a little bit about three chip cameras because if you've sort of you know, delved in out of the video space over the years. Um, you know, 10 years ago, three chip cameras were what you looked for in if you wanted a good camera. Um, right, they were all the hotness. Right, and this is the idea that you have a lens, the lens hits a prism that splits your light into red, green, and blue, and you have three different sensors, um, each attached to that prism, um, picking up those channels, and there's sort of two... Um, two advantages there. One, you know, you're sampling, you know, you, you've got an equal sensor for each of the three channels. And two, um, you actually can place the sensors at the right distances away from the lens because the different wavelengths of light have slightly different focal distances. And the idea is slash was that um, you could actually have, you know, the green sensor slightly further away than the red sensor or whatever um, because of the different wavelengths of light. Um, and, and the third big advantage to it was you were using CCDs, which got exponentially more expensive as you added photo sites. So it was a way to get three times the sampling resolution right. versus a Bayer pattern. And and certainly when the idea of 3 chip cameras you know, came on the scene 30 years ago or whatever, there was not even an option to build a, a single CCD with... Um, you know, four or three X the sensor sites or two X the sensor sites. Um, you know, they weren't even doing. Uh, there wasn't even the technology to individually filter right photo sites. They couldn't build filters that size without mucking up your image. Right, and so it was you know a technical necessity, but 
through basically the whole life of standard definition, three chip cameras were the business. Um, and when HDV first came on the scene, you know, there were a lot of three chip cameras, um, all the early Sony Cine Altas on up through like the F900 and even F950, I think, were three chip CCDs, um, unless you were getting the Panavision versions. Um, and so that, you know, they're, they're, it's definitely not a bad thing. Um, and and certainly has some advantages um but cmos with some sort of um pattern is definitely the way the way forward for most of these right the advantage the advantage of it is that you get you know the with a few exceptions the best way to get a clear image at a affordable price is to put less and less and less glass between you and the because good glass is very expensive, right? And so, the you know the prisms ended up being a fairly expensive piece of the three chip setup, and then keeping the three you know designing it such that those three sensors were properly arranged, and it was it was a needlessly comp you know at this point it's a needlessly complex system. Also, it meant that your sensors were smaller, which had issues for depth of field. Right. Or you had to, you know, you did bigger sensors and then you had costs of everything else that goes into that. Right. Um, so that was um, that. Was that. I, um, so you mentioned bearing um, and one of the things that you know most consumers never see is that you know their their image may have originated that way but by the time you see your video it's uh yv or rgb depending on you know what kind of device you're viewing it on um and so there's a dsp or something in your camera that's actually doing that debayering um and one of the things that's been new on the scene i think uh, you know credit to red for being the first people to really do this with their red raw format um the idea with with what they did was that rather than do any of that in the camera, you could just capture all the raw data coming out of the, the you know, block of the camera and store that. And then in software later do the deep airing where you would have more control over the process and, um, you know, make choices about trade-offs and only recover the data you needed. Um, and right. Well, not only, only recover the data you need, but the, the big advantage to, I mean, the biggest advantage to doing that, is that a because you don't have a three to one relationship of photosites to pixels, if you're sampling your photosites at let's say eight bit and you're building a twenty four bit RGB image, it means you're actually creating data during that debayering process. You actually end up with a larger stream of data afterwards because you're interpolating data out of that. And so the advantage, I mean, what when Red first announced that thing and they were saying, you know, we're going to put this much, you know, this is our resolution and this is our bit depth and this is, you know, how long you're going to be able to shoot on a card. You know, the numbers didn't really add up if you were using traditional RGB math and it was because they didn't, you know, they're, they're, they actually were working with less data because they hadn't 
extrapolate it out to that larger resolution right before storing it right um now so, the downside is you're not using dedicated hardware to do this. I mean, you put the chip in the camera, and well, one, it raises the cost of the camera slightly, but two, it means you don't have to have a beefy machine just to play back your video, which was a problem with the red, red raw, red code raw for a number of years. Right. Um. So, one of the other issues that I find really fascinating with sensors is um, the way that different manufacturers have chosen to use the number of photosites they can pack on a chip. So um, when RED came out, they basically built a sensor that had 4K worth of photosites, uh, whatever, 4,096 by whatever, 2,000. Um, and they chose to do a Bayer pattern to capture data and then reconstruct a 4k in terms of pixels uh, image from that and that was their whole selling point is that it's a 4k camera um, there's actually a lot of other people who've put out cameras with the same or more photo sites on their chips that have chosen not to do things that they marketed as 4k cameras uh, so for example um, the sony f35 camera uh, which came out a few years back and is closely related to the Panavision Genesis, um, which I think is still the current. I, I think it's still the current version of the Genesis, but I think Genesis is one of those products where it's sort of every time they build one, it's slightly different. Um, and they have a sensor that has um, a dedicated photosite for red, green, and blue. Um, so in, in effect, they've built. Uh, what is the number here? Let me see. Oh, come on. I've really annoyed my computer. All right, so um, they've got about 5,700 pixels horizontal, photo sites horizontal, and it's striped, um, you know, blue, green, red, blue, green, red, blue, green, red. Um, and they've actually got 2160 photo sites vertical, um, and what they do from that, instead of building what could be called a 6K image, um, instead what they build is a 1920 by 1080 image where each pixel in that image is based on the data from a total of six photosites, um, two green, two red, and two blue. And they actually did something even more clever. Um, at least this is what they were talking about doing, and I think this has made the final shipping product in that they um, effectively put a neutral density filter on every other row of pixels so that um, the the second row of pixels in of photosites in every given reconstructed pixel um, is capturing uh, um, has a has a exposure filter on it and they're actually able to increase their dynamic range that way um, essentially doing a high dynamic range image right on the chip so it's like bracketing two exposures yeah, exactly. And then when they recombine all six of these pixel, uh, all six of these photosites into a single pixel, um, they you know get the advantages of you know not having to debayer, and they also get this dynamic range benefit. Um, so it's a pretty clever thing, and it's been a pretty popular camera at the high end of the market. Sure. Um, and you know, so that's that's one interesting way of doing it. And now, of course, you know, the 
when you have the situation in which you've got these stripes of pixels, um, there's some argument that there's a downside in terms of um, sharpness and other things. If if you depending on how the the lens is built, it's attached and, and things like that. It, I I doubt that the sensor is often the limiting factor in that case. But right, you can end up with color aliasing. Right, but. But again, that's only if your sensor is resolve or if your lens is resolving, you know, at at right six right. K or something. Um, the other new camera that just was announced this week, actually, or well, it was shown in NAB, but apparently it was announced this week. I don't know. I don't think they gave a lot of details. Yeah, com- companies love to do this. Like you know, you can you can announce a product at six different shows and. Um, no you can ship it a year after that. Right. Um, anyways, this is the Sony F65, which, as you might guess, has a... Um, wait, actually, does it have a 65mm sensor, or do they just call it that? Now I'm starting to wonder. I don't think... No, I think it's 35. Yeah, I think you're right, too. Why'd they call it the F65? Because it's newer than the 35? I know, but that's pretty dumb. I think I call it the 35 two. Anyways, this is um, a 4K camera with an 8K chip, um, and this one is not a traditional bearer pattern still, uh, but instead what they've done with this one is um, they've done this sort of diagonal layout of, um, of pixels where they've got a row of green and then a row that alternates red and blue and then another row of green, and they've, they've packed the pixels together a, a bit more so that... Um, they're actually sort of offset from each other so that you can um, pack them a little bit tighter. Um, The idea being that for your 4K image, you've actually got 4K worth of green samples, and then you've got 2K worth of red and 2K worth of blue, and then you sort of um, debayer or reconstruct an RGB image from that. But the idea is that you're getting most of the benefits of a quote-unquote true 4K RGB image without needing to have all those extra photosites. Now, where, how does that, I gotta look this up on Wikipedia now, because that doesn't sound too different than Bayer. What's the well, ratio? With Bayer, you have um, two green for every one blue and every one red. And so. Just what you said, that's what you said for the F65. Um, in, no. 4K, 2K, and 2K. This is two to one to one, same ratio. No, maybe I said one of those wrong. Um, the so the F sixty five is a true sort of four two two if you want to think of it that way sensor. Right. Uh, a Bayer pattern is a four two zero sensor or four one one if you like that notation, but it's actually four two zero. Now you're confusing me because that's. Here, I'll send you a link. Look in the chat. There's a picture of what the sensor looks like. Okay. I see. So it's actually, it's still the same ratio. No. No, it's not. No, there are twice as many green as you would get in a, a bear. And, yeah. No, wait. No, I don't think so. Yeah. No, no, no. There's just twice as many pixels. Entirely. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Imagine... No, you're looking at this image wrong. I'm pretty sure I'm not. 
take the take the conventional bear pattern, turn it forty five degrees, and look at it. It's the same. Um. Yeah. No, it's not. The whole thing just turned forty five degrees and stuffed twice as densely. I don't. I don't agree. But it's hurting my brain to think about it. We'll uh, we'll have to have some sort of listener prize. Okay, so the one on the left has twenty five greens, <laughs> and it has a total of uh sixteen plus twenty five photocytes. So. 41 photocytes. Oh my god. And so that's uh Oh my god. How about this? So Let's just 60% of it is green and the other one has a total That's only cuz the way that they did this it's they stopped at green on the entire around the entire edge. Let's do this. Let's uh let's wait until we'll we'll reconvene next week and you can agree <laughs> with me. You can admit you are duped. By Sony PR. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you're wrong. You but uh, well, if anyone would like to write in this week and agree with me, uh, they can do that. They they could do that, but they would be also wrong. Uh, so what else we got? Um, um, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of other people um, getting into this space of doing HDR on a chip um, using similar patterns where you've got, you know, different exposure levels um, on different photo sites. And I think that's really interesting. And I'm really excited to see that hopefully make it into some more consumer friendly products and hopefully, you know, make it all the way down to, um, you know, our, our cell phones and things like that. Right. Um, now, let's talk about that for a minute. Do you, have, you, have you looked at any of those? Yeah. Now, my understanding is that they're not actually, they don't actually have to do anything on this sensor, do they? Right. Because both the, the CMOS process is analog, and so the clipping actually occurs in the A to D. And so all they have to do is have two separate A to D quantizations. Right? Right. I mean, I'm not actually sure how they've implemented them. Um, my understanding was they were actually implementing them with, you know, an ND filter on those pixels, but that could really? be, that could be a marketing thing where that's how they're explaining it. And that's gotten sure. you know misunderstood. Interesting. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm more at this point, I think I don't need any more. I mean, we can stop at 4k for a while. Yeah. Well, uh-huh. and that's why I think it's so interesting that a lot of the manufacturers who've been really successful in this space, Red Excluded, have been focusing on 1080p delivery. You know, the other hugely successful camera in the digital cinema space is the Arri Alexa, which um, at best outputs sort of 2K, but really everyone uses it in a 1080p mode. But their sensor has um, n- nearly as many photo sites as the Red sensor, um, uh, you know, slightly lower. Um, it's just that they've chosen to optimize for some other things in terms of the image that they deliver. Right. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's cool to see those, those decisions being made. Um, so I don't know. What is, what's the Chinese company doing? 
I don't we know. talked about last week. Yeah, How are they going to do this? I don't know. I don't want to make a joke that could be misperceived. It's too bad it's not Behringer. Wow. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's a similar story. Um. Uh, do we? Is that? Have we covered everything? I, you know, I didn't have anything else, you know, hugely insightful to say about this. Uh, you know, we'll link to some things if you want to actually get a full primer on uh, sensor design and how these things work. Uh, it's obviously something that's better seen through pictures and um, words combined together rather than us talking. I think. Um, and you know, it's a space where we've had a lot of change over the last five years, um, and I'm not sure we're going to see the same amount of change over the next five as some of these technologies mature a bit more and the decisions that work sort of rise to the top. Um, but you know, it's certainly, um, you know, I, again, like you were saying, I don't think anyone's at this point really complaining about the resolution being delivered by some of these high-end cameras. And when they are complaining, it's often due to other steps in the chain and not to the actual acquisition. You know, it's the, yeah. the lens is the limiting factor or more often nowadays, the sort of delivery workflow is, is where you're losing resolution or um, dynamic range or other things. Right. And I mean, I actually read an interesting article in Simpty this week where they were saying that, you know, the new limiting factor is going to be temporal resolution. Sure. Um, just because your perceived detail in the shot goes up drastically as you increase your frame rate because of shorter periods of motion blur. Right. Um, and so it sounds like that's going to be the you know, it sounds like already that's becoming an area where people are starting to explore. I mean, a couple of movies are being, a couple of big movies are being shot at double frame rate, 48p instead of 24p. So it'll be interesting going forward to see if that is the next big move. Yeah, well, we'll see when Peter Jackson's next thing, uh, whatever he's shooting at 48 Hits the hits the, the Hobbit, right? Is it okay? I think he's doing the Hobbit in that. And do you know if he, is he planning to deliver forty eight p or is he planning to oversample? I don't know. Huh. I mean, the nice thing about these digital, all digital workflows now is he can conceivably deliver forty eight p to a digital projector without you know people needing to remove their gates and whatnot. Right. I'm, I would like to see it. I'm curious to see what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. I am as well. So, uh, chatter? Uh, yeah. Let's, what are we going to call these? Uh, I don't know. We can just start drinking cocktails so that we could call them cocktail chatter. Mm, I'm, uh, I'm home alone this week. The missus is out in New York for work. And so I, uh, I'm letting loose this week. Yeah. What are you drinking? I got this and I got it. Okay. So this obviously is the clank of a nice, uh, pint glass with some ice in it. But what's this? Uh, pork rinds. No, Twizzlers <laughs> and, a, and a big glass of Mountain Dew. Nice. 
I'll see how much work I can get done. I'm going to see if, if that was the secret to my productivity in my early 20s. <laughs> that could be. That could very well be. So I was, where was I the other day where uh, Twizzlers were flowing freely? It's very strange. Weird. Yeah. Twizzler. Okay. So what's your uh, Twizzler and... Do you ever, you, do? You, you, you bite each end off and then you suck them out and do through the Twizzler? No, I don't get time for that. Yeah. I chug it. I'm extreme. Yeah. I got to get them out and doing quick. Yeah. Before your body has a chance to react. Yeah. Start start saying what what are you doing to me you should really order a domino's pizza or something they, they probably don't have domino's in san francisco i think we've got one down the street really Just, we've got a pizza hut down the street i think we have both a block from us both the domino's and a pizza hut. that's weird does gavin know i don't know they don't give out toys so it's okay <laughs> they're not authentic i thought you guys only did authentic things yes that's what i think when i go to the bay it is very authentic. Uh, my thing that would be called chatter um, is a press release today um, from a company that I hadn't heard of before um, called Invensis. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know. They're probably like patent trolls or something, but uh, it's a, um, a way of stacking dim chips on a single die essentially um the idea is that, that if you, when you think about ram manufacture um you know if you want to put you know a bunch of ram in your laptop um the limiting factor is often how many individual memory um chips can fit on a dim which is the actual card that holds the holds the ram and so you know you can either make those chips have more data packed into them or you know so instead of using one um, gigabit dims use two gigabit dims or you can pack more of them onto the card and the problem is that ramping up the the capacity of those chips um, is it gets exponentially more expensive as you get towards the high end um, and packing more of them on the physical dim is a problem in things like laptops because you're actually space constrained. Obviously, it's a really big issue in things like uh, mobile phones. Um, you know, back in the day, in the PC world at least, we actually used to get um, dim sticks, or the, back in the day, they were SIM sticks um, that would have multiple physical chips stacked on top of each other. Um, but you don't really see that anymore, I don't think. But I what, think the ones I got this last week were like that. For, um, for your Mac Pro, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what this company's come up with is, is a, is a way of doing it where you're essentially stacking a bunch of, um, lower capacity chips within the same actual enclosure. These, but then you wrap them in the plastic, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so because the plastic and the trace takes up and the, the traces that are the pins are what take up all the real space, right? Um, but what, you know, and they've just sort of figured out a clever way of wiring these things so that um, they don't need any special controller chips or special support from the CPU or anything so that they appear as if it's, um, you know, just a bunch of uh, chips on a single DIMM. Um, and it sounds fairly trivial, but of course, at the scales we're talking about, um, that is a non-trivial sort of thing. Interesting. The scales in terms of, you know, how big an actual... These are, I think, RAM nowadays is probably running at what, like, forty-five nanometer or something. RAM is always running at these crazy yeah. small sizes. 
Yeah, it's pretty small. So, well, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, are they? I mean, are they talking about how they did it in the lab, or are they talking about how they're shipping them soon? Um, right now, it is in the lab, and I'm sure they're looking to license this. Um, right. Yeah. And, and so, but you know, it's it's cool. Um, you know, I suppose the MacBook Airs already have their memory soldered on the board, but um, you know, if we could sort of get cheaper, if you could solder a chip in that was twice as big well or if it was just become, more. yeah less you know more cost effective for them to add more memory that's that's great for everyone yeah no that's cool i would like more room i always want more room yeah um so my talking point this week is um distribute a, a memo on that yes um, is a video going around the internet right now, which is a um, porn film oh. that was done about the first 3D model ever rendered by uh, Ed Catmull and uh, another guy, Fred Park, who were uh, Ed's the guy who is now the CEO of Pixar. But it's just sort of so one, they show the the video, so it's a rendering of a hand as a wireframe, and then they do they I guess they do have a shaded version too. Um, but what I found really interesting was the process they used to model this hand. Right. And so they built a clay model of their they like cast their hand, and then they sat down with a marker and marked out all of the vertices that they wanted and then they drew the lines to build all the polygons and then i think they modeled it again in paper so that it was the actual had the flat contours or they sanded it, sanded it down or something and then they 3d scanned that using a point scanner uh-huh. so which is basically a robotic arm but instead of any motors in it it's all sensors and so the robotic arm has like a little pen at the end and you touch the pen to a spot and say take this position and it measures the all the encoders along its arm and says okay i'm right here in space and then you do the next one and so they like built this thing up point by point and connected each of the points you know in memory to build each of the polygons and then they animated the thing point by point and what i mean so the so it's neat to see sort of you know the first you know the first thing anyone ever saw in 3D on a computer and sort of how far we've come but what i thought was so interesting was how far we've come and there seems to be a giant perceptual change for us, you know, like no, you know, I can't, no one would have any reason to do that anymore. Right. And it's not because, you know, some of it's because the software's improved, but I think it's more that like we're able to think in 3D now. Maybe it's because of the level of abstraction that the software provides. But, you know, you wouldn't, you know, you'd just be like, oh, I need some points here, I need some points here. You know, the idea that they had to physically, like, map out where they were going to put each of the vertices in physical space with a pen and pencil first. Right. I found kind of funny. Yeah, that's that. That's very interesting. And I wonder, 
you know, do you think any part of it, I, I haven't watched this video yet, but I've seen the hand before, but not this whole video. Um, do you think any part of it has to do with the trade-offs in terms of render time that, you know, I mean, it may have been, I mean, it's a low polygon thing, but it's not, it's not even a very good model. I mean, you look at it and it's not, you know I mean? It's not like, it's not a bespoke. <laughs> Man, that like, Wright Brothers plane sure was crap. Well, no, but I mean, at least the Wright Brothers plane made, you know, so they, they hand chose every single one of these vertices and you look at the model and there's not like a, you know, it's not an orderly polygon choice. Sure. It kind of looks like, you know, some vertices are connected wrong to each other. And, they, you know, I don't know. It was just, I found it curious. To me, it seemed like it had more to do with getting the designer's heads wrapped around the idea of modeling something in 3D than needing, you know, that process. It seems like it was more of a crutch for the designer than a crutch for the computer. Huh. Interesting. Well, next time we see Ed, we'll have to ask. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, see you next week. Yeah. All right. Talk to you later.